Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13, down to verse 12 of chapter 53. This is the fourth and final song of the servant in this prophecy of Isaiah. So let's hear it. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed, we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, or with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he, he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. God's word is, so is God. Uh, the two are connected eternal and uh, in, in that way tr full of truth and life and may God bless these words to our hearts as we hear them read and proclaimed. 
Uh, this is one of those glorious passages of Scripture. I think one of the key prominent ones that God has given us to understand the sufferings of Christ. Uh, while they were uh, proclaimed, first of all, uh, about 700 years before Christ came, uh, they were fulfilled uh, uh, in the life, uh, in that hu humanity of Christ as he came to suffer and die for us. Uh, this is a huge text. It is the fourth song of Isaiah about the servant of God. And it is perhaps the longest of the songs. And you really can see the music uh, aspect of it when you see from uh, chapter 52, verse 13, uh, down to uh, verse 12 of 53, uh, there are, are five stanzas to this song. And, and as uh, a song, each one of these sections uh, could easily be a sermon speaking about the glory of the humanity of Christ. God, the eternal Son of God, who became a man and what he accomplished for our salvation in the flesh. Like the very first song we looked at from chapter 42, this song also begins with that command and that imperative, Behold my servant. And when you put it in line with the other songs, the other songs build up to this crucial prophecy that reveals the depth of the sufferings of God's servant. It's interesting, that's the one thing that Israel struggled with when Christ came, was the fact that he would have to suffer and become a curse. And why Israel struggled to receive Jesus was for that very reason that as he hung on the cross, they looked and they said, how can this man who is cursed by God be our Messiah, be the Christ? How can God himself be, be so cursed and judged uh, in order to be our Messiah? It was a real struggle for them to get over. And so they look at this particular chapter, even today, I, I understand this, in my conversations with some people, that, that most Jewish people do not regard this portion of Isaiah's prophecy of speaking about the Messiah as much as it is speaking about some man who may have uh, lived and, and fulfilled this in his life. They reject it as belonging to the Christ. And yet when you read this, you see the wonder of what God is doing in his servant to provide for our salvation. Uh, with this song, almost its entirety is, is uh, uh, quoted and applied in the New Testament to Jesus Christ. And some of you know the most uh, prominent place where that happens. It's in Acts chapter 8. When Philip is led by the Spirit to go and catch up with the Ethiopian eunuch who is making his way back to Ethiopia, having spent his time in Jerusalem and hearing about all the wonders of what went on with Jesus and, and seeing the church growing there. 
and questioning who is Jesus and what is this all about. And in Acts chapter 8, we see the details of the Ethiopian's unit, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch's effort in trying to understand who the servant is. And, and you go there, and he, he, as Philip draws near, he says to him, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? And so Philip came up and sat with him. And the place that he was reading were verses uh, 6 and, and 7, and, and it's talking about the sufferings. And as he's reading this, the eunuch looks to Philip and says, of whom does the prophet say this? Is it of himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture. How many of you know the next uh, four words? <laughs> he preached Jesus to him. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's the thing about this is that we have the testimony of God that this entire song is speaking about Jesus and his sufferings. It deals with what Christ endured at the hand of God, not just at the hand of men, in order to accomplish our salvation. It is a song that reflects how Jesus was, to quote Hebrews 2.17, how Jesus was in all things made like his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. In other words, it's God's way of saying to us, Jesus not only had to become a man in order to redeem men, or to put it today, men and women, but he had, to, he had to deal with our humanity before God. As a man, he had to suffer, endure, and endure from God's hands the judgment and wrath and condemnation that we deserve in order to quench the wrath of God, in order to cover and remove the sins of God's people so that we might have that communion and fellowship with God. And this is why Jesus became a man, in order to be that merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for our sins. God the Son took to himself human flesh and became Jesus. Jesus the man. The one who would save his people from their sins. And there's really three things. Like I said, we could look at many things concerning uh, this whole uh, passage and this whole song. But there are three things that I want us to consider tonight in looking at the various sections. And the first is uh, his unexpected victory. As you look at chapter 52, verses 13 down to verse 15. I know when it comes to Isaiah 53, many don't begin here in chapter 52. Uh, I have a small thing to note. I know there's a number of people who have memorized Isaiah 53. I, I did that 
uh, when I was uh, 11 years old and uh, was going to Sunday school. And the reason I did it wasn't because I understood what Isaiah 53 was necessarily all about, but was because if you memorized it in Sunday school, they were going to give you a free Bible. And, and I didn't have a Bible. And it was my first Bible I ever received. It was the Living Bible. Some of you may know that. Uh, big, thick, uh, paraphrased translation. Uh, but I, I did it. And, and I got the Bible. And I started reading the Bible after that. And I grew to understand this was talking about Christ and what he did to save me from my sins. It's a marvelous text. But it begins in chapter 52. It begins there with this overview of what Christ was going to do in the flesh for us. And that unexpected victory that he would accomplish the Father's expectation of him. The Father's plan was for his servant to come in the flesh to show unto mankind what they were created to be before him. My servant, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. In one line, God said, he's going to show to you what you in Adam failed to do. And that is to glorify me in your life. We were created to fulfill righteousness, truth, and wisdom in the world. And, and we know, and you, you know the fall of Adam. I don't have to go through all of that, but he rebelled. He disobeyed. He said, I want to be my own God. I don't want God ruling over me. I will decide for myself what is good and what is evil. I will take that to myself and I will be my own God in this world. That describes all of humanity. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It means to say that I will not submit to His authority, His majesty, His glory over me. God says, look at my servant whom I have sent. He will do this. <laughs> he will show you what you were created to do and what you don't want to do and what you fall short of doing. He will deal prudently. And because he will be such a man, the Father then says, this is my expectation. I am going to exalt, extol, lift up very high. He will be rewarded by me. He will receive all of the glory that I can bestow upon Him. And you see the words of verse 13 fulfilled in Philippians 2 where God speaks there about the humiliation of Christ where Christ came and took our flesh and condescended to to that image of man in order to go to the cross in obedience to the Father and die in our place on the cross. And, 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 and it speaks of, of that great humiliation that it cost the Son. But here was the Father's expectation that Jesus in doing that would receive the highest glory that God could bestow upon Him. 
And you hear those words in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 9. Therefore God has also highly exalted Him, given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, like there's nothing within all of creation that will not bow to Christ. God has made Him Lord over all. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's encouraging to us. The Father's expectation was indeed fulfilled. He exalted, He extolled, He lifted very high this servant of His who glorified Him in the flesh on the earth, who did what we failed to do. Some have said, with this threefold exaltation, it actually speaks of Christ's exaltation, His resurrection, His ascension, His enthronement. But it, it, it speaks of God's desire to set His Son above all. But He also goes on in this section to talk about how this would happen. The Father's plan unfolded. The Father's explana- uh, expectation is in verse 13. But how is this going to happen? And we see in verse 14 how it's going to happen. Not as we would think. If a father was going to glorify his son, he would set him normally before people and say, this is the son of my love. As you honor me, honor him. And and that's normally how kings would, would present it in that way. But the father's plan wasn't that. We see in verse 14 that God's expectation of His Son was that He should go through appalling suffering. This is something I know as much as I like to use words to try and communicate the depths of Christ's suffering. This is something that only the Spirit of God can impress upon your hearts. What did Jesus endure? What did He go through in order to save us? Well, both in His humanity... In his soul and in his own relationship with God, he would endure an appalling suffering. His appearance would be grossly marred. That's what that means when it says his visage was marred more than any other man. His body would be put through so much torture that people would be horrified to look at. When you read that, what you are seeing is the hatred of the world that is poured out on Christ. You would see the world that, as we're going to hear in a few more verses, would not esteem this man, would despise him for all of the glory that that he exhibited as a true man in sinlessness before God. He would be so rejected that people would pour out their hatred and violence upon him. But it wasn't just that. It was also in his soul. He would endure appalling suffering that none of his people would ever be seeing. He would endure the horrors of wrath and the weight of judgment. 
That it, it was something more. That what you see in his body spiritually before God is what he was enduring too. And many would be astonished at this. Why and how could any man go through and endure this? Many would be astonished that any person, let alone this man, could endure so much violence and hatred and wrath. And I think when you, when you grasp that, it puts context to the words of that centurion who, when he was standing at the cross of Christ and saw and, 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 and was there present looking upon Jesus and all that he went through. And when he says, truly, truly, this man is the son of God. In, in some ways he was saying, you know, the only way he could have endured all that he had just experienced was if he was God. He should be dead. (laughs) And that was part of the Father's plan. And even after all of this, the expectation of the Father was that he would bring about a great victory. And, And again, this goes contrary to our thinking, but this is God's plan. I expect my son To be the one to fulfill righteousness so that I may exalt him. And the way he's going to do that is through suffering. And that suffering and degree of suffering would be greater than any man ever endured. And that would be so that he would come forth in victory to the nations. To sprinkle many nations. There's the unexpected victory. Such a man should be crushed. Such a man should be uh, gone from the earth. But God, God in his plan says, no, he's going to come. And through his sacrifice, sprinkle the many nations. And you see that in verse 14, as it begins with that, just as many were astonished at you. Verse 15, so shall. He sprinkled many nations. You know, you can be astonished and horrified at some of the evil that goes on. Well, God plans to turn that astonishment into salvation. In those words of verse 15, so shall Jesus come and sprinkle many nations. That was a phrase that would have been understood in their time about a man being offered as a sacrifice, about a sacrifice that is so holy, so righteous, so effectual, and so sufficient that it will bring a blessing of grace to all the nations of the earth. And it will be such a victory that kings will be beside themselves to prevent the spread of God's kingdom throughout the world in every generation. The unexpected victory that God has purposed in his son who becomes a man. And then in this song and in the bulk of this song, song from verses 1 to 9, the focus is on the unbelievable sufferings of Christ. Who can believe this report? Who can believe that the arm of the Lord, God the Son, 
would lay hold of such humiliation if he was really God? Who can believe that this is the way that God has chosen to come and to to dwell on the earth, tabernacle amongst men? Who can believe that this is God's plan to bring us salvation? When he's going to be one that, that most people who look upon him are going to despise and reject him immediately. The unbelievable suffering that Jesus endured. I, I know this is hard for us to grasp in our fallen humanity. But there is no one who suffered like Christ. And, and you can look at some of the places on the earth and see the sufferings that are going on and be horrified at the depths of evil that are being endured by people even today and, and, and of a truth as hard as this is for us to accept none have still come close to enduring the suffering that Jesus did it is beyond measure he was rejected verses 2 and 3 of all the men that ever walked upon the earth who is the one man that should have been esteemed by all That word esteem, it is an accounting word. It means to be valued. (laughs) You know, we, we really value this person. Well, Jesus was valued so long as he would give people some sort of goodness and, and treat their illnesses and prosper their life in some measure. When it came to his righteousness and his holiness and his wisdom, He was rejected. And the one man that displayed the truth of humanity is the one man who became the scorn and contempt of humanity. And in all ways humanly possible, Jesus showed, revealed our bankrupt and impoverished state before God. He would receive no honor among men. He was a man of sorrows, it says there. Despised and rejected a man. Acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We would give him no value or worth. We did not want to see him, follow him, or accept him. My, you should read. No, you shouldn't. But it would probably take you aback to hear what people say of Jesus Christ and and Christians who would follow. In the second section in verses 4 to 6, his suffering is even more unbelievable in that he did not suffer for what he did. (laughs) He had no wrongs for which he should have suffered. No, he... He was suffering in the place of others. He is, as what we would call, a vicarious sufferer. One who stood in the place of another to bear their anguish, to bear their sickness, to bear their sorrow and their grief. And that's what you read in verse four, where, verses 4 to 6 where this is applied to us. Why did Jesus have to suffer? To bear our griefs. To carry our sorrows. To be afflicted. 
you read this passage, you, you see that Jesus, Jesus was standing in our place, taking what we deserved and taking it, as we see here again, uh, taking it in our account. Again, the language here is one of an accountant, one that is speaking about uh, that which it takes to pay the debt that another has, being, as he says, esteemed, stricken, counting him to be the one who needs to suffer. <laughs> it should be mind-boggling. I know in our home sometimes, some of you as children growing up, you knew what it was to experience Discipline from your parents for things you never did. But sometimes in our parenting, we get it wrong where we are unsure who did something wrong and we think it is an individual and we become convinced that it is an individual and they get punished for that wrong, but they didn't do it. And you know, being that person who suffers in that state, you know how hard it is to bear that and not to have that increase of resentment towards the one who is punishing you. Because it, what, what do we say? It's not just, it's wrong for me to bear the punishment that someone else deserves. And here is Christ in the flesh doing that very thing and enduring it so that we can have peace with God as our debt of sin is paid for. And what these verses 4 to 6 reveal to us about his suffering is not only was he paying the debt that we have, but that his suffering, his greatest suffering, came at the hand of his father, came at the hand of the Lord. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted by God. The chastisement that our peace needed was placed upon him. You get all the way down to verse 6. At the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Father laid on his son all our sinfulness, the wrath and the judgment, the punishment that it deserved. And you stop for a moment to think about that. My dear friends, this is what it cost both the father and the son to accomplish peace with God. If all of that wasn't unbelievable enough, rejected for being righteous, punished, not for something he has done, but for what we have done, and not holding offense against God for doing that. You see in verses 7 to 9, he willingly did this. He offered himself for this. Siblings, how many of you knowing that one of your siblings did something wrong, would go and say to your parents, punish me for their sin. <laughs> Doesn't happen in our homes, does it? <laughs> Maybe not purposely, anyways. 
here is the Lord coming and doing that. And you see that when it talks about him being silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Do you know what that means? It means he didn't stand there and say to God, it's not fair. I don't deserve this. God, why should I be punished for something they have done? (laughs) But it's even more than that. His silence was his way of accepting the charge of guilt and doing that in our place. It's like if the judge had said to them, what is your plea for all of these charges that are against you? His silence was his plea. Guilty. Guilty as charged. And in his silence, he visibly received not just the contempt and violent hatred of man, which is part of what's being understood there. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You read in the Gospels when he stood before Pilate, when he stood before Herod, did he say anything in defense? No. He received all of their contempt and violence and hate. And he could have spoken but one word and seen all of his enemies laid to nothing. Because there was a spiritual work going on here. He understood that through this he was also enduring God's judgment in our place. He was stricken. You see that in verse 8. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. You know that word stricken? There's a lot of words in here that have a lot of meaning, but this is one of them. It means he was to be treated as one who was leprous. That's what it means. He was to be regarded as one who was to be rejected and forsaken and cast out. And, and he did this willingly. He entered... Verse 9, he entered into the prison of death and judgment in our place. And we ought to stand back and to say, what, what kind of man would do that? What kind of man indeed? It is the Son of God who willingly came in the flesh in order, in love, to save you from all your sins. You think it's a glorious thing When we read, as we did in Matthew's Gospel, you will give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And he shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. My friends, this was the ways and means that he had to go through in order to save you from your sins. And this was the Father's plan for his Son. And it brings us to that last section in verses 10 to 12 where God brings forth unequaled glory. As we have already heard, just as astounding uh, his sufferings were, even more is the glory that the Father heaps upon his Son. 
where as much as God was pleased to bruise his son and put him to grief, it was for the purpose of making his soul an offering for our sins so that God's pleasure of salvation should prosper in the hand of his son. God's pleasure is to save people. It was the Father's pleasure, not simply just to make His Son an offering for your sins. It was the Father's pleasure to prosper that sacrifice of His Son and bringing salvation to the ends of the earth in saving you and drawing you into His kingdom, removing the curse of death and judgment that was over you so that you could be a beloved child of God. It was the Father's pleasure to do this so that through His servant, He could be just toward you. He could come and be able to say to you, You are not guilty. You are released from the penalty and condemnation of your sins. Your debt is satisfied. There's no judgment against you. I want you as my child. (laughs) The Father's pleasure. Because Jesus so willingly numbered himself with you, so fully bore all your sins, and so lovingly made transgression for you, the Father is pleased to glorify his Son. And through that glorifying of his Son, to give you all the glory that he has for his Son. That's amazing. That the Father would glorify you in His Son, even as the Son is glorified. That's the inheritance He has laid for you who would believe in Him. An unequaled glory. And my friends, if you believe in Christ, you have this inheritance. And even though we will be singing that song of the Lamb, worthy is Christ to receive blessing and honor and glory and power, and it will be brought to Him. So we also hear these words in Romans 8, that the the Spirit, as He bears witness in our spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, there's a caveat to that. We, we have an inheritance waiting for us. We will be joint heirs with Christ. But what's the caveat? That if we suffer with Him, we will be glorified together in Him. This is the Son of God who came in the flesh to redeem you. When you understand what He endured in your place, how can you look at any suffering that you endure for his name here and now is worthy of being compared to the glory and the inheritance that he has waiting for. There is no comparison. This is a song that speaks about uh, unexpected victory and unbelievable suffering, unequal glory, but it is a song that speaks about Christ's willingness to so love us Come into this world as one of us to bring about our salvation. And in the end, to bring to us glory and honor before God. This is your Savior. 
believe in him and know his grace to that end. Let's pray.